Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. Why is the way that we remember the past often different than historical reality? And how can we use public history to inform conversations in the present about events that took place centuries earlier? On today's episode, I'm delighted to introduce you to Dr. Ann Furtick, my newest colleague here at the Washington Library, who will help us think through some of these questions. Dr. Furtick is a specialist in 18th century literature, historical memory, and women's history. She's the founder and co-director of Jane Austen and Company, a lecture series about Jane Austen and her broader world, and she is our new digital projects editor at the Washington Library. So put down your copy of Pride and Prejudice just for a bit, and let's do some public history with Dr. Ann Furtick. Anne, you've been here for about three months now as the new digital projects editor at the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. So first off, welcome. Uh, We're delighted you're here. What would you like folks at home to know about you and your research interests? And we can unpack all of this over the course of our conversation today because it does bear on some of the exciting things that we're working on. But what should the folks at home know? Thank you, Jim, for having me today. I am so excited to join Conversations, and I am so excited to join the Center for Digital History. My background is actually in literature, not history, although I did train in 18th century literature, so I do know quite a bit of history. But I am a literary scholar, and so I'm very excited about books. I'm very excited about words and stories. In both the stories that were being told in the 18th century, but also in the ways that we share stories about the 18th century today. My research background is actually in a field known as historiography, which is the writing of history. How do we write history? How do we remember history? How do we transmit history from one generation to the next? And so as a public historian or a public humanist, I take that knowledge and I take that research when talking to the public today about history. What are the myths that we believe? Why do we believe them? As well as what are kinds of histories are of interest to people today? Let's back up then a little bit and figure out where your interest in all this came from. How did you get started down these paths? That's a very interesting question. I've always been very interested in history. I've always loved historical fiction. I've always loved historical literature. But I think that this impulse was first awakened during my master's degree at the University of Glasgow, where I received a master's in Scottish history. And I started noticing that there was a difference between the sorts of histories I was reading in the primary materials and what we might call received history, which is the history that we're taught. Particularly in Scotland, as you know with your research, there's a big divide between what scholars might call the Celtic periphery. That's the highlands of Scotland. Those are the Gaelic speakers. And the history is told about them by English speakers in Glasgow and Edinburgh. And so as I started to look into this, I started to realize there's a whole history behind the writing of history. That many of these stories and narratives that we think we know today are actually inherited from the 18th and 19th centuries. And because I had that English degree as an undergraduate, I put it to good use and I started really kind of looking at the construction of those narratives and how they got passed on and how people writing historical fiction in the 18th century versus how we continue to write historical fiction today. And then conversely, 
what did they consider to be historical fact versus what do we continue to assume is historical fact? Well, when you were doing this research at the University of Glasgow and discovering that there was a difference between history and received history, is there a particular example that stuck in your mind that kind of was like the aha moment that crystallized for you that there was a distinction here and that some of the assumptions or some of the things that are passed down are more historical memory or the more in the ways in which we think about them or reconstruct them in our mind as opposed to what might be supported in the documentary evidence? I think there are so many examples. And I think, unfortunately, some of these examples can really kind of run into the very obscure, the very precise. But I'll use an example that caught my interest very early on that people who are listening to this might recognize. And it's a movie about Scottish history. It doesn't matter if that movie takes place in the 10th century. It doesn't matter if that movie takes place in the 18th century. They're painted blue, blue Scotsmen. And I sort of wondered where that was coming from. Originally, it was believed that the Picts who inhabited Scotland were named the Picts because in Latin, that means painted. Today, we know that's not true. We actually know that Picked is the Roman way of pronouncing what they would have called themselves. It doesn't actually originate. Scholars no longer believe in the Latin language. But from that one belief sprung this idea that the Picts painted themselves. Well, what would they have painted themselves with? Well, they started borrowing ideas from the Norse that they're painting themselves with woad. But woad produces a blue pigment. So the Picts started being imagined as painting themselves as blue. And then I believe it is in the 17th century, in their historical documents, they started providing images of what they imagined the Picts to look like. Well, what do the Picts look like? We don't know. So they took inspiration from Native Americans, and they produced these images that were based on Native Americans, and then they painted themselves blue. And from there, we formed our entire understanding of what the Picts look like. To the point today, if you watch some of these movies, I think it was King Arthur had Keir Knightley painted blue. Braveheart. Mel Gibson was painted blue. And that, first of all, didn't come from the Picts. It came from the Romans, came from the Norse, it came from Native Americans, but it didn't come from the Picts. And so that's just one example of how these little historical myths kind of build up over the centuries to the point where they completely inform how we might view an entire nation today. As you were talking, I was thinking about John White's drawings of people he encountered at Roanoke in the 16th century. And they are comparisons between the Picts as they allegedly were in ancient Scotland and the Native Americans as they were conceptualized by European settlers in that period. And it's, it's really fun to think that there's all of this uh, transatlantic and deep historical conglomerations that produce Kira Knightley's appearance in King Arthur. It's a, it's a terrific example of how all of this gets mixed into a historical stew and then kind of received wisdom and then eventually realize, well, maybe not. With the Scots in particular, there's so many imaginings within our modern historical imagination. Kilts were only worn by a, by a certain region in the Highlands in a certain very narrow time period. But... They have come to embrace what we imagine all Scotsmen to be. As you know, and as our audience knows, a lot of what we do here is considered public history. So we do a lot of podcasts. We do a lot of digital projects like the Encyclopedia of George Washington. We're working on a huge map portal project now with our friend and colleague, Alexandra Montgomery. 
And one of the things that you do is to aspire to amplify silenced histories and create bridges between university and community audiences. Unpack that for me a little bit. What does that mean to you? What do you see as the function of public history and bridging the gap between the so-called Ivy Tower and the general public? This is such a great question because this is everything that I do. And this is everything that motivates me to work in this field of public history and public humanities. And I think it's best summed up by a story about in my early days of kind of starting my own public humanities work. As a brief history about myself, I have been volunteering with the Jane Austen Summer Program for for many, many years now. And that is really where I kind of received my initial training in the public humanities. It's a four-day symposium that takes place annually in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, that is all about Jane Austen, but also her world. And we like to say it blends scholarship with fandom. And so in 2019, I founded what was started out as a reading group called Jane Austen and Company. And my goal with that was to take this this love of Jane Austen one step further and to reach out to communities. I started out at Durham Public Library hosting a reading group on female authors who are contemporaneous to Austen, but who don't get as much attention as Austen. Mariah Edgeworth, Frances Burney, Phyllis Wheatley, you know, these, these big names but who, for whatever reason, aren't as memorialized in our culture to the same degree as Austin. And I remember at our very first talk, we were talking about Mariah Edgeworth. I had brought in a great speaker from UNC, Sarah Walton, talking about women's participation in the novel industry. Coming from the academy, it's such a cliche. In the 18th century, novel writing was a woman's pursuit. Women were deeply involved with novel writing, You had so many women publishing at this time. And more than that, so many women reading novels. So it's really exciting for when you're a women's historian and you're going into this period because there's so much there. And a woman in our audience piped up, and and she was a very educated woman, a very well-read woman. And she said, I didn't know that. I didn't think women wrote at all during this period. I thought Jane Austen was the only one. And to me, that was such a shame, right? For decades, we've been doing so much work on these amazing novels that women were producing in this period long before Jane Austen. And yet, this brilliant woman, this very well-read woman, just didn't have access to any of that information because it was essentially all behind paywalls on these academic journal sites, these heavy academic monographs that cost $100. And we were her first exposure to this idea that women have always been writing, that Jane Austen is not exceptional because she is a woman, that she was coming from this wonderful tradition. To me, that kind of illustrates what's wrong with this kind of ivory tower mentality, as we might call it. So much good research is being produced. We're finding out things about the past that we never knew before. We have access to digital archives, which make it easier than ever for us to access these sources. We're broadening our view of who to consider in the historical narrative. But even though that work's getting done, it so rarely leaves the university, to the point where by the time these ideas do filter out, they're usually a couple decades old, which is very unfortunate. So I, I kind of made it my mission as I developed Jane Austen and Company. When the pandemic hit, we went online. And we suddenly made our mission now to bring that research to these audiences directly, to 
to bring in scholars who are doing really cutting-edge work and to have them speak directly to audiences around the world. We have brought in speakers like Devney Lozer, Gretchen Gersina, Peter Saber, and our audience is largely non-academic. We've seen uh, live audiences of up to 400 people, largely in the North America, but also from the UK, Australia, Japan, Italy, the Czech Republic. And what are they talking about? They're talking about women's history. They're talking about literature, 18th century literature. We're talking about textile history and music history and all these forms of history that people don't usually immediately have access to. It's pretty evident then that there is a desire for this kind of history, a desire for this kind of knowledge, or at least the potential to be exposed to it and be delighted in ways that they had not anticipated. Oh, there is. There absolutely is. We've had tremendous interest in our program. And some of the comments that we receive are actually asking us for, for more and for more into areas that surprised us. We've done so far three series. The first was Staying Home with Jane Austen, which focused on women's domestic labor within the home and their practices therein. Our second series was Race in the Regency. And after Race in the Regency, we polled our audiences and we said, what do you want to see more of? A lot of people said, you know, you've covered a lot about the West in this period, but we want to know about Asia. So we had our third series based on that feedback, Asia and the Regency. And we're going forward with two new exciting series coming up in this fall and next spring, which were also generated from audience feedback. One on the books that Jane Austen read, and the other looking at science and production history and material history in that period. That all sounds fantastic, and I'm looking forward to these next two seasons. And so if I were to tune into one of these streams, what's the format? Is it a conversation between guests? Is it a lecture? They're a lecture format. We ask our guests for a roughly 40-minute lecture. And then the rest is Q&A, which is generated mostly from our audience. So our events are actually 90 minutes long. So you might notice that the Q&A portion is a significant part of that. And it needs to be because we have so many great questions from our audience. I don't think we have ever once run out of questions during the Q&A portion. It's really fun. We have great lecture, but there's also a lot of audience engagement. How can people find Jane Austen and company? Well, we are on Facebook, but you can check us out uh, most directly at our website, Jane Austen and Co. That is Jane Austen and A-N-D-C-O.org. Or you could check us out at janeaustensummer.org, which is the website for the overall Jane Austen Summer Program. One of my favorite things that we did when you started was actually your first day as we took you into the vault and it was essentially Candyland for you. Listeners might know we have a manuscript room here at the Washington Library where we keep uh, a lot of our manuscript documents and a lot of our rare books. And in one of those chambers are volumes that belong to George Washington, volumes that belong to Martha Washington, and then duplicate editions of those volumes that we don't actually own. We took you in there and I remember the look of delight on your face. That's what you want to see when your new hire comes on board and is like, yes, I've arrived. So Take us into that moment and tell us what excites you about some of the materials in that reading room. Well, first of all, I just love old books. I truly love working with original books in the 18th century. Yes, you can, you can, you can find the text online, but there's a, there's a certain joy to seeing the books in the flesh, the, the materiality of them. And 
I, I remember clearly walking in and, and looking at some books and, you, you know, you guys being like, oh, those ones weren't owned by Washington. And I'm just like, but they're still cool. <laughs> they're still so interesting. But I find so much potential in the collection of books owned by George and Martha Washington. The conventional reading of George and Martha's book habits has always been that George was a very practical reader. He owned books largely for show. A lot of the books were given to him, but he was really just primarily interested in agriculture. And as for Martha, well, she probably didn't read much at all. And that's just, you know, what we say. And in the three months that I've been here, in pursuing my interest in books and my excitement about them, I have found that's not as true as we might think it is. I think there's a real tendency to compare the founding fathers against each other and to be like, George only owned a third of the books that Jefferson did, so he wasn't as fervent a reader as Jefferson, therefore he didn't read at all. And I find with Martha, that question just wasn't really asked at all. We don't really ask about her what was she reading to the same degree that we ask, what is George reading? And so in my time here and going through all of the old accounts and all of the old letters, I'm finding evidence that, you know, maybe they weren't reading like Jefferson, but they were reading. And they were reading some really, really interesting things. And more than that, their families were also reading. They are very much still within a literary network of their time. You know, they're still very tuned in to the popular culture, to the popular ideas and debates of their era. Can you give us just one example? We don't want to scoop your research. Is there one particular book that you saw there or one particular piece of evidence that you've uncovered thus far that really, really excites you and lets you know that you're on the right track? Well, I think the first one I saw that I, I was really like, this surprises me that the, they have this in their library, was Eliza Haywood's Female Spectator. Eliza Haywood was one of the first novelists in Britain and one of the very first female novelists. But more than that, she published one of the earliest female-led periodicals called The Female Spectator, which was a response, of course, to Addison's Spectator. And in it, she published a series of anonymous pamphlets taking on a variety of different identities to speak to women about women's issues. And it is very typical of its era for women, but also very radical at the same time. You know, she's kind of sneaking in their ideas <laughs> um, through, through very conventional language. And Haywood was read in America in the early colonies. We know that. We know that she was very popular at circulating libraries. But George Washington owned a copy of The Female Spectator. And I was just not expecting that book of all books to be on a shelf. And I think it's believed to have originally belonged to his mother that then found its way into his library. So first we have to ask that question, right? Why him out of all the children? was this given? And maybe it was given to Martha or, you know, Patsy, we don't know, but it found its way into his book collections. And then if you look at the inventories, the probate inventories at his death, who should scoop it up? Who wants that book right away to the point where they actually wrote in the inventory? Bushrod Washington took it. We might say, okay, maybe he brought it for his wife. But at the same time, that's, that's a very interesting trajectory for what was then a very old book. But this would have been early 18th century when The Female Spectator was originally published. All the way in 1799, Bushrod sees it, scoops it up from the probate so that no one else can take it. What's going on there? Why that book? It's an intriguing question. And actually, it gets back to where we started, really, which was this difference between received wisdom, right? The 
memory of a historical figure and our collective understanding of them. And in this case, as you said, the assumption is that George is just reading about agriculture and doesn't really care much about anything else. But he has got this particular book, The Female Spectator, and then Bushrod, who is Washington's heir and inherits Mount Vernon when he dies or when Martha dies in 1802, takes it for himself. That's a very intriguing trajectory. And as you rightly put, what gives? It sounds small when you just talk about the one book. But when you start picking up these stories for every book in the collection, you start to actually see a much larger picture about what they're reading and why. And so I'm very excited as I move forward in this position to explore this angle more in depth and hopefully to publish something on this so that we have a clearer picture of what, you know, that, that what we might call the intellectual life at Mount Vernon was like. As you are thinking about the public history side of it, what are some things that you can imagine that we could do with the rare book collection that we're not doing now and with the knowledge that you yourself in particular are generating about these rare texts? I think that's a very, very good question. And, I, and I, we certainly have a lot of exciting plans for how to incorporate the book collection in our 10th anniversary celebration next year. But I think one thing we could do is we could certainly emphasize a broader range of the books when we talk about the library. We often talk about his copy of Don Quixote. We often talk about his love of agricultural texts. But there's more than that in our collection. You know, we do have novels that Washington owned. I strongly believe he did actually read. We do have these beautiful botanical magazines, you know, and yes, they were agriculture and nature, but they were also very artistic. We have his geographies with his maps. We have letters, epistolary letters and, and guidance and sermons and all of these other texts that form a much richer picture of the kinds of ideas that Washington was engaging with. Beyond the books, what other opportunities do you see here? It's fabulous that Mount Vernon has a Center for Digital History and that Mount Vernon is, is thinking of these ideas and how, how best to kind of bring the estate to the world. And to follow up on that, I see, you know, a lot of possibilities for the same work that I'm doing with the books to do with the collections at Mount Vernon and to really kind of get into all of the other ways we can read history here at Mount Vernon, whether it's through the material history, architectural history, whether it's through the agricultural history, different ways to bring that to the world. Because there are so many people out there who don't live in Northern Virginia, might not have the opportunity to visit Northern Virginia, to give them a real opportunity to experience what is held here. And I think that's kind of the great possibility and potential that digital history has. More conversations after the break. Anne, I know you're always reading, but what book are you reading right now? I like the rest of the world right now. I'm reading The Letters of Martha Washington. <laughs> I've been pretty heavily engaged with that, but I've also been kind of comparatively reading it with uh, Patricia Brady's Letters of Nellie. Oh, uh-huh. Tell us a little bit about that, because that might be unfamiliar. Eleanor Park Custis was Martha's granddaughter. She was raised by George and Martha. She lived with them during the presidency. And we have this wonderful collection of letters between her and her dear friend, Elizabeth Bordley, from starting when they were children all through their adult life. And Patricia Brady collected these letters that they wrote back and forth to each other. And it's so delightful 
because she was described, I think, as a half-wild child by her grandmother, very young. But she has such imagination. She's so witty. She's making very sharp and shrewd observations about everyone in Philadelphia society, as only a teenage girl really can. Uh, She's talking about what books they're reading, joking about becoming spinsters. And it's really lovely, too, because she talks about Martha a lot. Whenever Nellie writes about Martha, she calls her my grandmama, my beloved grandmama, my dear grandmama. And you can really sense how close they were. And one thing I have learned in my research on the books is that Martha ended up giving a lot of her books to Nellie. And we know that because Nellie wrote in them. This was given to me by my dear grandmama. I thought it would be fun to read their letters in conversation with each other. Who is the author you most admire? I admire many, many authors. I feel like Jane Austen is the easy answer. So I'm going to go back to uh, Eliza Haywood. One from, you know, a literary aspect, but also just a really remarkable life. Very independent woman in early 18th century England who really broke barriers and defined her own life for herself. So I highly recommend if you're listening to this, go, go check out Eliza Haywood. What is the most exciting document you found in the course of your research? This is a great question. I'll give one from very early on when I was an undergraduate, I was invited to do a project on the Glaswegian poet, Marian Bernstein. And she was a periodical poet. She published in newspapers in Glasgow in the 1880s primarily. And it was my job to go through and to source all of her poems. And I just remember that first time I found a poem no one else had found yet. It was so exciting. We were doing this work of collecting her poems, and I was the first one to lay eyes on it. It really kind of set the pace for the rest of my scholarly career. And finally, how do you hope people remember your work? I hope people just kind of remember the joy of discovery and of broadening these horizons, right? I I think one of the, the great joys of history is that feeling of discovery, of knowing something that you might not have known before. And I hope that's what people take away from my work. I think that is an excellent thing to take away. And thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for being here and agreeing to work with us. And I suppose we should get back to work. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. (laughs) Thanks for hiring me. You're welcome. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. I'm Jim Ambusky, your host and producer for this episode. We received additional support from Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our music is Witch's Brew by C.K. Martin. Head on over to our website for more great interviews or to check out our other podcasts. You can find us at www.georgewashingtonpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.